And most women who are 55, who have a ton of money, by the way, who've made their own money in many ways, will say, I don't want to be 25 again. Show me a 55-year-old woman who is like an amazing woman who I see as you know a, a role model for me. I'm not talking just physically. I'm talking about from a, an accomplishment standpoint. You know, show me like really interesting people who are over 50 who do lots of different things. And that's a particular category that has been is really way behind. Welcome to Longevity Gains, the show that reveals the near limitless opportunities for digital marketers and entrepreneurs in the longevity economy. We're talking about the people aged 50 and over who already account for more than half of consumer spending in the U.S. and 83% of household wealth, which will only increase in the years to come. It's the $22 trillion opportunity you can't afford to ignore. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Longevity Gains. I'm your host, Brian Clark. And this is the show where we explore the $22 trillion opportunity represented by the longevity economy. That's generally people over the age of 50, and we're experiencing a massive demographic shift where not only is our society aging, but most of the wealth and household spending ability is concentrated in this group of people. They're living longer and healthier and you need to get in on this. If you want to learn more about the fundamentals of what we talk about here on the show, go to longevitygains.com and sign up for our free ebook. It's called Longevity Economy Fundamentals, and it'll get you up to speed fast on what we're talking about here and in the future. Now, on this episode of the show, we're talking to Michael Clinton. He was a publisher of GQ magazine from 1988 to 94 before becoming an executive at Condé Nast until about 1997. Clinton then joined Hearst Magazines as senior vice president and chief marketing officer. Beginning in 2010, Michael was a president, marketing and publishing director of Hearst Magazines and also served on the board of directors. He's also a photographer. He's traveled through 124 countries, has run marathons on seven continents, holds two master's degrees, and still has a long list of life experiences that he plans to tackle. Oh, did I mention that he's 70? It's easy to forget that part because Clinton is an example of the new longevity, and he's actively helping to spread the word about the opportunities of the longevity economy. After retiring, quote unquote, in 2020, he remains as a senior media advisor to the CEO of Hearst. But what he's really focused on is his next phase venture, Roar Forward, which complements the book he released in 2021 called Roar Into the Second Half of Your Life. You're going to enjoy this interview. Michael is incredibly knowledgeable about this stuff. And he's living it. He's got the corporate level experience to understand what needs to happen at the brand level as we shift deeper and deeper into a society that is more and more dominated by older consumers. Let's talk to Michael.
All right, welcome everyone, and let me uh, introduce our guest today, Michael Clinton, who, as we've let you know, has had an esteemed publishing career, made it to age 70, and then went into glorious retirement, right? No, that's not what happened that's, at all. That's not the story, no. <laughs> that's not the story. So, Michael, why don't you share with us a little bit about, yeah. uh, you know, humble beginnings to publishing magnate to uh to roaring uh, advocate for the uh over 50 crowd yeah thanks i'll give you the short version you know i'm from pittsburgh pennsylvania working class kid first first one in my in my family to go to college and at the age of 21 decided i want to be in the publishing magazine business and of course it was in new york city so i got in my car and drove to new york with a bunch of stuff and um you know, ditched the car and moved to New York and sort of said, I'm here and ultimately started at the bottom of the bottom, like many people, and um, ended up in having a 40 year amazing magazine publishing career. I was the longtime publisher of GQ, and then I was the senior VP and exec VP at Condé Nast, the big publishing company. And then I moved over to Hearst, uh, where I've been for 25 years, and I got to be on the team to launch Oprah's magazine, the most successful magazine launch ever in history. Um, launched Food Network magazine, HETV, bought a bunch of companies, had a phenomenal team, was the chairman of the magazine Publishers of America. So I had a really great run, as they say, for a kid who came with 60 bucks in his pocket, no contacts, and a dream. So, um, you know, I... Uh, I had a pretty good run, and I for someone who came to New York City as a with sixty bucks in his pocket, and no contacts, and a dream, and it was really uh, it's been really great. But you know, after forty years, I was sort of um, full, and I was kind of ready for my next thing. And so, chapter close, you know, curtain down. Uh, really great way to wrap up uh, a magazine publishing career, and that then led to a whole epiphany and an entire um, new idea about the rest of life, which I can pause there and ask if you have any questions on the, I just covered 40 years, like in like six minutes. <laughs> but if you have any questions or comments before I jump into the next phase of things. Yeah, well, I'm curious, you know, so you headed up GQ magazine, right? Yeah. Um, what period of time was that? What what decade were we in there? So we're talking about uh, the 90s, which yeah. was, you know, pretty amazing time in the magazine business. It was certainly the glory days in a lot of ways. And, you know, we had actually Cary Grant. It was his last cover was the GQ cover. And I had the pleasure of meeting him in California. And, you know, we had a lot of that. Those were the years when we really had, you know, major sports figures, celebrities. I still have proudly autographed basketball for Michael Jordan sitting on my den shelf, um, having had dinner with him in Chicago. And so it was a heady seat because it was heady times. And, you know, it was really, you know, those were the days, of course, pre-internet, pre-social media, pre-everything, where um, magazine brands and print products had a much larger voice in the culture than they do now because there's so much so much information out there from so many sources but yeah it was sort of glory days yeah and I, I guess that was my point because so i graduated from law school in 94 i did the big law firm thing for four years and went straight to the internet and became and that became my thing 
So I didn't have so much of a legacy aspect that I had to shed, um, even though, you know, we're not digital natives like they call millennials or, or Gen Z, but still, um, it was an easy transition for me to see, okay, here's a new thing. And we're kind of making it up as we go along and you're entrenched in the world of print and you had to make that adjustment. And you not only went beyond GQ, you went to the head of Hearst. Tell us a little bit about that as far as how much of a challenge was it? Did you relish it? Did you hate it? You know, what, what was that? Oh, like? I loved it. I, I, well, first of all, I loved every minute of it. I'm one of those people that had a very happy and satisfying career. And with the exception of a few cranky days, I mean, I was really happy to be in the business I was in. I think that magazines and content that magazines um, produce, whether today, and of course, it's on all platforms, is a true public service to um, the, the world at large in, in terms of, you know, things like health and wellness. You know, we have men's health and women's health, you know, important products. We have the good housekeeping. And so that is the good housekeeping seal of approval, which brings great consumer advocacy. Um, you know, we have Esquire, which brings great thought leadership. So I was really, really proud to always be a part of, of that. As you pointed out, I had to ride the wave of the, of the big disruption. The disruption that really started in the newspaper business, um, although we have a lot of newspapers at Hearst, including Houston Chronicle, um, which are very successful and profitable. Um, but first it started in newspapers and it went to magazines. Now, of course, it's in television, which is being disrupted with streaming. But I had to ride that Bronco of uh, the digital disruption and help to lead our brands onto digital platforms and social media platforms and get our teams have their head around it and monetize it and get advertisers and revenue around it. And as you point out, you know, I wasn't a digital native, but I, so I had to be a student every single day. And, you know, I think it's a really important message in general. You have to be a student in life every day, whether it's in your professional life or your personal life, because the world around us, what we know is it's constant change. And so you have to be tuned into being a student to learn those, learn those things. Yeah, so you're no stranger to big change. And here we are facing a giant demographic shift that so many people just seem to be blissfully unaware of as it happens right underneath our noses. So you have this great career. Um, you, you're approaching your 70th birthday, COVID, all of that. Any, no one would have blamed you for just riding off into the sunset at that point, but you had already come up with a framework that you express as the acronym ROAR. And that yeah. became, you You just went right into it. <laughs> and I love that, of course, um, because it kind of mirrors my transition after selling my company into what I was going to do next. And that was our project further. Anyway, tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write the book ROAR, which is fantastic. And it's really aimed at people over the age of 50 as perhaps a, a, a citizen or, or a consumer, what have you, while you also do work with brands on the other side of the fence. So let's talk about the book and what inspired you to do that first. Thank you. So it was actually um, when I stepped out of my publishing career, I was actually around 64-ish. Um, and so I was ready for the next thing. I had actually started talking about being a student. I had gone back to school and was getting a master's degree at Columbia University on uh, philanthropy and nonprofit because I'm on a variety of nonprofit boards. And some friends and I started a foundation 
uh, called Circle of Generosity, um, you know, a dozen years or so ago. So I was really interested in the nonprofit space. And I was like, you know, what the heck? I'm going to go back to school. And, you know, so there I was doing papers and taking tests. And that's a whole other discussion. Um, but when I started looking around, I started seeing that the messages that we all got from culture and media and entertainment and work and so forth was really this notion that you should start winding down when you get into your 60s. And I'm like, you know, I'm just the opposite. I mean, I want to wind up. I got so many other things I want to do and so many other things I'm interested in. And as I kept peeling back the onion, I kept not only seeing that there were a lot of people like me, but that we were smack in the middle of a major new social movement in this country and in the world, which is what we call the new longevity. That if you're 50 and healthy or 60 and healthy, you're going to live to be 90, if not 100. So you have a whole second act of life that, you know, when retirement as a concept was created, the life expectancy was 62. So you basically got to 62, you retired-ish, you moved, or 65, you moved to a sun, sunny state, you played golf, and you were dead, you know, in another <laughs> year or two, right? It's pretty yeah. much. But today, you know, if you're 62, you may live another 25 years. So golf is not sustainable for 25 years for most, you know, most people. They want to The have green fees will golf. kill you. <laughs> but they just, they want, they want more action. And as I was looking at this, I was like, wow, there is this cohort. 35% of the U.S. population is already over 50. It's going to grow exponentially. The first millennials turn 50 in seven years. 50 plus right now has a huge spend. They would be the third largest economy in the world just in terms of their spending power. And they own a ton of assets, as you know. For better or for worse, 70% of the assets in this country are owned by people over 55. And you're starting to see now how they're all busting out, spending money on themselves and spending money on travel and experiential economy. And But more importantly, there was a whole attitudinal behavioral shift that was going on where people who were 50 and 60 and 70 were saying, you know, wait a minute, I'm not following that script that I was handed because I got a lot more I got to do. So that was my headset. And my headset led me to... Go at, going out and meeting people who are like me. And I ultimately, in the book, found 40 people who I interviewed who were sort of like me, reinventing, reimagining, jumping in headfirst, you know, going to med school in their 50s, you know, running their first marathon literally in their 80s, you know, doing all sorts of, get, you know, getting re, uh, new relationships, starting new businesses, launching new careers. And I was like, this is so something going on here. So that led me to the book of Roar which is an acronym for, um, you know, the reimagination process, owning, owning all your numbers, you know, and we can elaborate on that, an action plan that we call life layering, and a reassessment of your relationships around you as you want to say at 50 or 55 or 60, man, I am ready to pivot in one way, shape, or form. This is the handbook in a readable, accessible way that you can write a new script for yourself. And that was the genesis of it all. Yeah. At uh, further, we talk about midlife reinvention. And one thing I've learned over the last four years of, of serving this market is I was thinking about midlife the old way, even though um, 
we're seeing, I knew that we had this shift going on. I, I read Joseph Coughlin's book, The Longevity Economy, and that really opened my eyes to a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, so if you ask Bradley Sherman, he'll tell you the new midlife is 50 to 75, right? So I'm just getting started in it. And I feel that way, honestly. Right. Um, so that that's an interesting dynamic right there. But so we talk about reinvention. And I think, of course, to reinvent, you have to reimagine in the first place. Through your interviews with your 40 people, which is a fantastic resource, did you find that people had this lingering urge to do something that started to nag at them in their 40s like it does a lot of people? Or did they really have to sit down and do the reimagining process to find the second act or what have you? Yeah. So, um, you know, it was, it's a great question. And there were a few things that sort of were were driving it. One was um, this desire that they saw a future ahead of them that had a lot of runway. And a lot of people said it really gave me time to rethink. Um, am I in the right job and career? Am I with the right person in a relationship? Am I doing the things that are really satisfying me and making me happy? And I would say they all spent a good year really of introspection, really thinking about what do I want for my next my next phase. And so there the time was put in by all of them. I would say that also and, and since the 40 I interviewed in the book, we've interviewed another 40 who we showcase in our monthly newsletter, which people can get at roarforward.com. We call these people the reimagineers. And we do little profiles with uh, people every month who are doing reinvention in midlife. But, you know, what I would what I would say is that they're fundamentally optimistic people. They're fundamentally curious people. You know, that becomes is that a nature versus nurture discussion. But I think the majority of the people who were able to move themselves forward had a real sense of optimism about the future and really thought it through in terms of what it is that they want. And also realized that they had a long run ahead of them that they could they could really make a change and have a different kind of life. And this all pretty much ties into what we know about having positive attitudes toward aging versus the stereotypes and misconceptions. Um, I think a lot of us figure it out that, you know, it's nowhere near what you thought being 56 or 66 or 70 in our minds and in the ageist culture that we've been, that we all grew up with that we didn't even think twice about it. You get there and you're like, this isn't bad at all. In fact, it's, it's pretty damn good. Um, so yeah, I, I, I find that part optimistic. The world itself can be crazy at times, but at the same time, some of your recent work says, Hey, why don't we make a difference about this? Uh, you know, instead of uh, going to the villages or or playing golf uh, or what have you. And yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things is that you know there's a this is a, a movement that it's in motion. Um, you know, I like to say I've become an accidental role model. Um, you know, when I was sixty, I went to Antarctica and ran a marathon and finished running seven marathons on seven continents. And as I mentioned, I went back to school in my mid 60s and I launched a business at 68. And I just came back from a nine day hike to the Everest base camp and ran a marathon down. It's called the Tensig Hillary Everest Marathon. And that's how I celebrated 70. 
And, you know, I say to people, you don't have to do that at 70, but you can do that at 70 if you choose to. And you touched on it. There's a lot of self-imposed ageism where people say, well, I can't do this or I can't do that or I'm too old for that or that can't happen. And we, we need to blow that up because you, you can do anything at any time. I was I ran the Toronto Marathon. I watched the first 100 year old man cross the finish line of a, of a marathon. He didn't start running till he was in his 80s. And so I say to people, listen, you don't have to run a marathon. But if you shed yourself of ageism, self-imposed ageism is part of your reimagination process. And one of the things we talk about in the book is you've got to integrate reimagination as part of your everyday habit. The same way you integrate you know, yoga or walking your dog or taking a run or doing whatever you got to do. The reimagination process is one that keeps you in motion, thinking about how you want to constantly be evolving and changing. So the role models are emerging. You know, certainly, um, you know, I loved Harrison Ford at, at 80, you know, doing, you know, his the new movie. You know, Tom Cruise at 60 is doing his own stunts. You know, Jennifer Lopez in her 50s. Eddie Kravitz is 60. He's like ripped. You know, he's, you know, so fit. Um Martha Stewart is on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 82. I mean, you're starting to see our celebrity culture shift and evolve for new role models. And you're starting to see everyday people representing new ways of living. And what will happen is other people should be and can be inspired by them. Next generations can say, oh, I can go back to school in my 60s. And that's pretty cool. And I can then go and have a 10-year run of something from 65 to 75. that's the kind of new thinking that um, needs is is being integrated and is happening as we speak with many people who are leading leading this charge. Yeah, I did a presentation on this topic last week at a conference and had to put up a photo of Jane Fonda for a couple of reasons. She helped us get into fitness way back in the eighties, which used to not be a thing. Um, but then I said, "Does anyone know how old Miss Fonda is?" Uh, after just wrapping up her seven year series and doing a couple of movies. And then I said 85 and everyone just freaked out <laughs> yeah, right. because yeah, it, it anyway. So I think to your point that the examples of the new longevity are everywhere. And we do look to celebrity culture for signals, right? Remember poor Wilford Brimley, you know, who was 52 when he played yeah. a geriatric in cocoon. Look at Brad Pitt. He's going to be 60 next week. <laughs> Think, think or of, next think month, of, I should say. Yeah, think <laughs> of the golden the Golden Girls were in their fifties, right? Think about it, and the Sex and the City women are in their 50s. are all older than they were, and they all look exactly. fabulous. It's amazing. So, so we know there's a new breed of older person. We know there's a new longevity. The other side of Roar is, hey, brands, wake up, you know, because and and again, our audience is well aware of the downright ignoring and or inadequate portrayals of older people. What we're trying to figure out is how do we fix this and not only make uh, successful companies for ourselves, but also impact society in a positive way. And it's not often that you can say marketing can really do that. But in many ways, marketing started the whole youth culture thing back when you were a kid. So so tell us about Roar Forward and and the change you're trying to make at the C-level suite, because in Madison Avenue, you get fired from your job if you're 40, right? So- no, absolutely. And so this is the the big topic because while while 
entertainment culture and um, even magazines are beginning to show age inclusivity uh, in a modern way, uh, brands and advertising are way behind the curve. And, you know, so we launched a B2B business um, around War Forward, which is out there talking to the C-suite and bringing the, the new world, the new world vision to the CMO world, the CEO world, the, the brand world, that this is a very, very, very different 50 plus market that has never existed on planet Earth before. And you have got to view them as a growth market with a different kind of message, with different kind of representation. It's not about two people walking into the sunset holding hands or, you know, petting the cat or sipping the tea or, you know, being, you know, tech phobic and all of the, you know, stereotypical images that are that are out there. I mean, it's true. It's it's really shocking when you see the lack of modern representation. And so it's a call to action. Um, and there are a lot of brands who are already doing it. There's a great brand called Caddis Eyewear, which you might know, which is really doing a great job. That Kith, K-I-T-H, the menswear brand, um, is a great, a great example. Um, you know, obviously Apple Watch, you know, they're most of their their consumers over 50. Tesla is disrupting the the uh, European import market with people who are primarily over 50 buying the product who are interested in sustainability and, and, and electric vehicles. So there are a lot of brands that are already playing in the space with product and ways that they they present themselves. But there are a lot of brands that still live in, um, I like to say, a 20th century model. So we do, we do a lot of research. We gather a lot of data and insights to share. It's an economic opportunity for businesses uh, if they tap into it and should tap into it. So, um, yeah, that's that's the mission we're on. That's the mission we're on. So part of this, there are a lot of misconceptions, a lot of stereotypes, a lot of ageism. But one of them is just a basic misconception that I think had some truth to it. And brands just didn't care to keep up with the fact that perhaps this was changing. And this is. The idea that there's a retrenchment in spending uh, once you reach a certain age. So maybe after 54, they stop talking to you because you're just saving for retirement. You're on your way out. You're no longer a viable consumer. Then once you retire, you're a fixed income person at, you know, at, at best or, or worst. And, you know, even if you don't, you squirrel away your money and you save it and pass it on to your heirs and all of this. That is changing in many ways. Number one, the baby boomers are probably the last generation with just an incredible amount of wealth, right? And they're spending it. In fact, you've probably seen the reports. They're propping up our economy to keep us out of recession. Everyone's like, the recession's coming. Nope, baby boomers keep spending and keep everything going. So it used to be true that you would only spend in, in like what travel, healthcare, insurance, stuff like that. But that's changing, and it's really going to change when my Generation X keeps working, some out of desire, a lot out of necessity, because things changed as far as retirement savings go, and we'll probably won't be able to retire at 65 at least and mass. And as you point out, how are you going to do that anyway when you lived in 95 or 100 and you outlive your money? That's If you ask a Gen Xer what their biggest fear is, it's not, I can't retire. It's, I'll outlive my money. 
and and then add longevity uh, science and and emerging uh, developments in that space, and that's a wild card that we haven't even factored in. So let's talk a little bit about that because you have been a vocal proponent of the idea that boomers will and should spend their money now, including by helping their children now while they're alive, while uh, also engaging in activism, which was the uh, the theme of your recent Esquire essay, which I loved. So give me give me an idea on this, because I think this hits people out of left field in, in a way, because you're even more optimistic than perhaps I am uh, about the, the level of spending that'll happen at, at the current, uh, you know, baby boomer generation level. So so let's unpack some of that, because um, you made a, a, a variety of really good comments. Um, the, the first comment I would make is this new cohort is spending money across many, many, many categories. And they're as fashion conscious and they're spending money on fitness and they're spending money on auto. And I just met a couple near me out here in New York who just built their dream house. They're in their 80s, um, you know, and they're like, why not? We can. Uh, you know, their kids are all grown up and they've always wanted to have a certain kind of um, certain kind of house which they built. And so I think, first of all, they're spending money in every single category and they're spending it throughout, you know, their 60s, 70s, 80s plus. Uh, a part of it is and of course, there's still a lot of inequality and in income. And so I say this with that caveat. But this generation, the boomers and those above them, you know, have a huge amount of assets, illiquid and liquid, and they are beginning to view the world that they should be, why not spend this money on ourselves? You know, we put our kid through school, we've helped them with their mortgages, you know, we're doing things with them while they're alive, but I have the money and why not spend it? The call to action in the Esquire story that you referenced was let's put some of that money against social impact and re-engage in activism, which was sort of the the genesis of the baby boomer movement. I mean, we were the original activists with, you know, Earth Day and marching against the war and, you know, sex and drugs and rock and roll and all those things we know. But our activism got, you know, sort of watered down over time. Let's go back and put some of this money into um, into social impact. But the one thing that is oftentimes forgotten for Gen X and the millennials is that those people who are fortunate enough to be part of families that have amassed all of this wealth, there's going to also be a, the, the, the biggest transfer of generational wealth in the history of the world over the next two decades. So $90 trillion-ish you know, is going to be transferred. That number might be a little high, but it's, it's certainly up there. Um, you know, I think the, the numbers fluctuate. Some say 70, 70 trillion, some say 90, as high as 90 trillion. Economists had different point of view, different points of view. But that money's all going to be transferred down to Gen Xers, millennials primarily, and those who are fortunate enough to receive those, that that transfer of wealth, are going to also become dynamic consumers in lots of categories as well as they move into their, you know, 50s and 60s and beyond. So I think the old-fashioned view was yes. You were in your 60s and you you were winding down and you weren't spending money on things. And once again, this is the fortunate people who have the money. Um, you probably see what's going on um, with the huge influx of tourists into American tourists into Europe. 
Um, and, you know, this past year, post-COVID years, I mean, there's a huge amount of tourism. The, the travel business is booming. You know, the experiential economy is booming. And, and all of this is being fueled by mostly by the boomers. And by the way, it's just not in the U.S. It's in it's in the EU. It's in Japan. It's in Singapore. And, you know, this is a this is also a global phenomenon. There's a great book that was written a number of years ago called Die Broke. Um, and mm-hmm. the book was basically you should be putting your money to use for your own self and for social impact in any way you choose. So that by the time you get to that last day, all of your money is spent and there's just enough to bury you or or, or do whatever you're going to do with your body. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that's a good philosophy. And so I think to your point, you pointed it out, the. The, the the boomers are fueling the economy now. There's a different sensibility, and marketers need to wake up to this to this because you know it's a it's ironic that it's become a new growth market. That's the irony of it all. Yeah, absolutely, and it's completely ignored to a large degree. Although I think this was a, a kind of a watershed year of mainstream awareness of the demographic shift to an older. Uh, society, falling birth rates, uh, knocking down a lot of the the stereotypes. It's going to take a lot more than this, but at least it began, <laughs> you know, no, no, because it's real. it's real now. <laughs> yeah, it's real so, now. It's, it's on the zeitgeist. Right. The other thing that uh, blew people's mind in my presentation was when I said in six years, the first millennials turn 50, right. right? When the first Gen Xers turn 65, but really you, you, all of a sudden that changes your perception of 50 plus um, in, in a fairly dramatic way. And as you say, either we're going to work longer, which all the indications say we will. And, and so we'll spend longer uh, along with longer health spans and lifespans. Or, or like you said, a lot of millennials uh, are going to finally get some money and it'll be after they're 50 <laughs> in, in exactly. many cases, which is exactly. the biggest irony of all. So um so you talked about the need for authentic representation. First of all, you have to have advertisements and marketing that aim at this group. And, and again, it's only a demographic in the most broad sense, right? You can't lump everyone age 50 to 100 in one giant bucket and think you're talking to anyone, right? Apple is a great case for that. Values-based marketing, they're the most popular brand with people over 50. The Apple Watch is the greatest version of life alert anyone's ever found with this fall detection. Oh, and it does all this other stuff, right? To empower you to right. live the life you want to live. That's the key, right? But anyway, you talk about authentic representation and you come from a, a world of images, right? In the magazine and, and brand advertising uh, realm. And that can be problematic because of subjective age. Like we don't see ourselves as a person who looks like someone our age. So what I like about that Caddis Eyewear site that you pointed out, they just throw up a whole bunch of people's faces of all different, no one's exceptionally young, but it's not just people that are 70 or 60 or 50. It's a it's an amalgamation of people and you just get to choose. You don't even have to choose. You're like, I'm one of them. I can accept that, right? And that works. That was great. I thought that was a fantastic example of someone who was on the right track and it wasn't some convoluted thing. The interesting thing to me also is that Warby Parker, which is 
you know, the millennial darling brand of eyeglasses um, made a fortune in the over 50 market simply by offering progressive lenses. Right. Like they didn't try to change their marketing. They just changed a feature. And this market is so hungry for cool stuff that works for them that they find it themselves. And I think that's the iron, another irony of, of the lack of attention that's being focused on these people. It's low hanging fruit, at least for the next five or six years. And that's really been our message. Let's get going on this. So I was just at a conference recently in Las Vegas. The Association of National Advertisers had a multicultural and diversity conference about different um, tar- groups to target, different perspectives um, from all sorts of uh, market perspectives. So the Hispanic market, the Southeast Asian market, the LGBTQ market, and how you speak to those markets in authentic voices and authentic representation. They had never done anything on age, which was kind of shocking to me, the last ism that has yet to be sort of conquered. And so they asked me to come, and I was actually the opening keynote speaker, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there I am thinking to myself, okay, how is this going to go over? But my message was, you know, age inclusivity We've done such a good job in the marketing world to have good representation of diversity, but the majority of the diversity has been under 40 in terms of the images and the representation. And age inclusivity gets lost in the discussion because a lot of creative people around the table are in their 20s, and so they default to what they think 50, 60 should look like versus having somebody who's 60 around the table saying, wait a minute, that's like so old-fashioned, you can't think that way. Um, you know, it's the same way you know, a bunch of white guys used to sit around the table and decide what advertising messages should be for women without women having a voice. And now then women were at the table, and then people of color were at the table, and LGBTQ was at the table. And you have to have people who represent the cohort cohort to be able to speak, you know, authentically. And my message was, regardless of your gender, your race, your religion, your politics, pick a category. Everyone is going to be in the 50 plus world someday. And they're going to want authentic representation of who they are. And right. it's just a matter of organic inclusivity. So you, should, it, you shouldn't have to like overthink it and beat it. Uh, and boil the ocean, just put people who are in that cohort in a contemporary way into your messaging, and you will have people say they look like me. What Coming out of my world, you know, when you look at the fashion luxury world, you rarely see anyone over 30 in fashion luxury advertising, men and women. And most women who are 55, who have a ton of money, by the way, who've made their own money in many ways, will say, I don't want to be 25 again. You know, I, I want show me a 55-year-old woman who is like an amazing woman who I see as, you know, a, a role model for me, who, you know, is not only um not only I'm not talking just physically, I'm talking about from a from a um an accomplishment standpoint. You know, show me like really interesting people who are over 50 who do lots of different things. And that's a particular category that has been is really way behind. The other is the automotive industry. You know, the number I, I may have mentioned this earlier, the average age of the car buyer in America is 60. Wow. It's the average age of the car buyer. 
Have you, when was the last time you saw a car commercial that had anyone over 40 in the car? How about never? You know, and there's this old thinking that, you know, younger people won't buy a car if there's an older person. Well, I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I show, you know, this great triathlete, you know, triathlete couple who've just come off of their competition and they're in their 50s or they're 60 years old and they climb into their hatchback or into their SUV, like, wow, not only am I going to re relate to them as a 60 year old, but and, and want to aspire to them in a way. But somebody who's 30 may say that that's cool, man. There, look at those 60 years. That's what I want to be someday. So there's this, there's these old-fashioned embedded uh ageist thinking that you know has to be you know exorcised out of the system. And what we say is that the people are going to drive the change. The people are going to say, I'm not going to buy your brand because you misrepresent me. The people are going to say, I'm not putting my dollar against you because, you know, you're you're not speaking to me and your product and so forth. It's it's very much like the women's movement. It's just a different movement. The women, women changed the conversation, the narrative, the imagery, how brands represented them in an authentic way. And the new longevity role models are going to demand the same thing. And, you know, C-suite will have to pay attention. With the changes in media, as, as you've already alluded to, going from newspapers to magazines to now TV, was, it seems like we also need different forms of messaging. You know, we've been in, you know, the content marketing world, which is very different from brand advertising. And in many ways, that allows you to authentically speak to people with the right stories and voice and what have you while avoiding simple images that people may or may not identify with. The other remarkable thing to me is that the largest group of successful entrepreneurs right now are between the age of 45 and 65. And then you've got this huge, I mean, not huge isn't even big enough a word, market for this that's that's being ignored. And you got to think that a lot of these people are going to train their focus because I'm not saying a younger person can't have the empathy to speak to older people, but it's not easy, right? And generally, they don't even try, which is pretty much was your point earlier. But you said something in a recent article that you wrote. Uh, the gist of it was the progressive companies who really understand the new longevity are bringing talent into the company to help them lead the strategy. Now, we have what the Wall Street Journal calls a perpetual labor shortage that's not going away. Older people need to work longer. They want to work longer. Do you see it happening or do we have a much longer battle to fight to get people to quit saying, you're 50, let's get rid of this person? Because after 50, you're not. it's not going to be your choice if you lose your job. It's going to be the company. Yeah, we're start, we're starting to see it ironically, you know, at the highest levels. So think about, you know, Brian Cornell at Target, you know, who's a great guy and a great leader. And they just, you know, the board just voted that his that the retirement age for the CEO should now be extended. Um, you know, Bob Iger at Disney is a great example. Um, you know, Bernard Arnault at LVMH, you may have read, they just uh, said that the retirement age will go to 80. Uh, he is the owner and, you know, is a global leader. But it's so it's certainly happening on the most senior levels now because companies are beginning to say, 
we need this experience and wisdom and expertise and knowledge and all of that. And as you point out in, in Gen X, there aren't enough people to fill the pipeline, so to speak. So there's a labor, there's a there's a managerial labor shortage, right? In in addition to just an overall labor shortage. And companies are becoming aware of that and beginning to say, we have to think about how we're going to keep our our uh, folks engaged longer. They may not be doing the same job necessarily. They may be doing a different kind of job. Let's create a different kind of job. But you know, this is American business, which is, you know, ask the rhetorical question, is American business ageist? The answer is yes, because when you think of a lot of other uh, if you're a college professor, you can teach until you're 90. You know, if you're a farmer, you can farm your land your entire life. You know, think about all the professions that are not in the core corporate world, so to speak. You know this, that, you know, a lot of the big accounting firms and law firms require people to retire at 60. Um, you know, there are, you know, a lot of these folks who are like, I'm going to go out and start my own company because I want to work another 15, 20 years. Right. Um, some of them because they need to work, some of them because they want to work. Um, they want to expand and extend extend their careers. So there's a lot of thinking. L'Oreal has got a phenomenal new announcement that they just made. You're familiar with L'Oreal, the the big big beauty company. Um, they launched on um, I want to get make sure I get this, I get this right. But they just launched a new initiative in their in their global globally in their company, which is about um, developing and training people uh, of, of all ages. They have thirteen thousand employees over the age of fifty. It is called L'Oreal for All Generations, and they have a particular focus on the most experienced people, i.e., over fifty. That. Um, is about 20% of their employee base around the world. And to me, that is the beacon of a progressive, a progressive company and others will have to follow. Um, and what's great about L'Oreal is they, they retrain, they reskill, they move people into new jobs. They take a senior person who is running you know, an operation and move them into a different kind of role. Um, one of the people that that they talk about is a 70 year old woman who's been in the company for 30 years, who just got a new job and a new promotion. And like, wow, that's uh, amazing. I, I myself, you know, promoted a 70 year old woman to be the publisher of of um, Harper's Bazaar, um, you know, in um, when I was in a sitting role. So I think C-suite have to, you know, sort of walk the walk, the walk and walk the talk, as they say. But L'Oreal is a great example with their um, L'Oreal for all generations, which people can look up just to see the kind of the kind of thinking that's already begun to happen. Yeah, beauty and fashion are obviously good places to start. I think you mentioned, you know, before that car companies are reticent to show older people, but Toyota is taking a stab at it. Yeah. If they know their demographics and the average age of the buyer is sixty, then that makes sense. No, Toyota's had some great some great advertising in in the space, um, and um, so you know, as I said, we're seeing we're seeing pockets of this happen across different categories, but it's going to be um, it's going to become more and more a part of what the the advertising marketing culture is going to have to pay attention to. 
um, because it is, as we've been talking, it is such a real phenomena that is hitting the the global scene. Um, I was just, um, I just went over to Oxford in London and UK to speak to a global management team of a major global brand where um, they are going to reposition themselves into this new longevity space. And they asked me to come over and speak about it. And they had all their global management from all over the world because Japan, as you know, is the oldest country, the oldest population in the world. And if you look at Japan and China and, and Singapore and Italy and Germany and the UK, it's, et cetera, where a lot of businesses have big businesses, you know, they have to really think about this as how it's going to impact their business and how they reframe their products, their messages, their strategy. So it's, it's, it's happening. It is happening and it will continue to build on itself. Michael, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been incredibly illuminating. I think you are a role model for 30-year-olds, never mind 60-year-olds and 70-year-olds. So uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I hope to do my part uh, there. Do you have any closing thoughts for people who may be on the small business side, more the entrepreneurial side about the opportunities to offer new voices and new products and services to older consumers? Well, as you touched on, um the the entrepreneur and the smaller businesses um, are really creating a whole new strata of uh, of the economy, and a lot of it is being driven um, by this fifty plus person who has you know skills and experience and money and resources and contacts. And you know there's a lot happening in the venture capital space around what we call age tech, and there are a lot of funds now, um, the Longevity Fund, Primetime Partners. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, yeah. a lot of the funds. And what I think I've learned from talking to a lot of the people who run these funds and businesses that are being launched is to talk to the con- talk to the consumer that you're interested in speaking to and creating product for. And um, what will happen is you will find an opportunity as a small business person to launch a business to speak to this this group. The the age tech space is really, and the biohacking space is really quite growing quite exponentially as we all live longer. I'm on the board of the Stanford University Center on Longevity. People can pick up uh, a piece that was written called The New Map of Life, which talks about the 100-year life is here. And, you know, what are the various opportunities that may exist within a, we don't like to say getting older, we like to say living longer, as people live longer and are healthier and are more dynamic. And you know, we haven't even touched on AI and what that's going to bring to, the, to bring to the party. But there's a lot of opportunity in the space and, you know, in products and services. We may have to ask you back, uh, you know, for the AI issue, because I almost went there and I'm like, we could talk two hours yeah, on that. That's so. another hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, in the meantime, tell people where they can find you. Yeah, thanks much. Um, well, RoarForward.com is our is our is all things central. People can sign up for the newsletter. It's a freebie. Uh, we have a corporate subscription, but that's a, more for the B2B world. And we do lots of stuff on the new longevity, which is data and insights and consumer um, behavior and, and content and so forth. Um, but you can see it all there on the site. And I'm on LinkedIn and I guess now on X, formerly Twitter, and um, Roar Forward is on Instagram. And so people are interested in following uh, what we're doing. They can all tap into those those social media platforms as well. 
And we will put those links in the show notes. Michael, thank you so much and have a great weekend. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it.